Decorating Pages is a podcast dedicated to taking you behind the scenes of the designs of your favorite TV shows and films. Each episode, I'll be sharing design stories from some of Hollywood's most famous sets. Interviews from set decorators, production designers, directors, and actors about creating the look of TV and film, about their design inspirations, and stories that take sets from page to screen. Hello, and welcome to Decorating Pages. I'm your host, Kim Wanup. First off, I am overwhelmed with the amount of subscriptions of the podcast this season. I hope it's been a learning experience of what really goes on behind the scenes in production design. I hope you have enjoyed it, so thank you to all of you who are listening. I really appreciate your support. Right now I'm working on a Netflix film called Moxie, directed by Amy Poehler, and I'm kind of deep into prep. We start shooting in two weeks, and um, I'm getting a little swamped. Not to mention I have almost one-year-old twins and the holidays coming up, so I don't think I'm going to be able to keep up this two-week episode schedule. I'm hoping for an episode once a month, and I'll see if I can get it done. But I think the next two episodes would end this season on a very high note. When I started this podcast, I made a list of friends I thought would help me out. Then a list of people who I worked with, and then a wish list of people who I admire and worship. My number one person on this list was Janine Oppenwall. A little background, about 15 years ago when I was struggling to get into set decorating and trying to get into the union, I reached out to some production designers to ask for some advice and guidance. And to my surprise, some emailed me back. And the ball's on me. I emailed Janine Oppenwall because I don't know who I am, but um, she was she was it for me. She was who I was striving to work with. She was so kind not only to respond, but met me in person at a restaurant on Beverly. And uh, we talked for over an hour, which I know this because she got a parking ticket when we left, and I still feel bad about that. In that hour, she gave me the advice, you gotta just keep going, it'll happen. And obviously she was right, but in her way, she made me realize there is no magic formula to getting into this business. You gotta be prepared when the opportunity presents itself. She was very matter of fact, and it seemed very East Coast to me, so I could relate to that. I secretly wish that she would take pity on me and hire me as a PA or something, or think of me in the future. But uh, there is no way the multi-Oscar-nominated production designer was going to hire that little stalker. Janine has been production designing since the early 1980s and says she stumbled into it, but it seems to me it's a perfect fit considering her body of work. She has been nominated four times for an Oscar of production design and robbed all four four times. L.A. Confidential, Pleasantville, Seabiscuit, and Good Shepherd are her nominations. She's the production design queen of period film. She has five ADG nominations and one win for Catch Me If You Can. She has won two LA Film Critics Awards, BAFTA and Satellite nominations. And in 2019, she received the Lifetime Achievement Award from the ADG, which I was lucky enough to be there and hear her inspiring and hilarious speech. One year at the ADG Awards, 
they had an introduction short film about what the art department does and they interviewed designers and art directors and painters and and Janine had the best description and I still think of it regularly although I'm not quoting it exactly she said something like we build the thing next to the thing on the thing and I've tried to look it up online to find a video of it because it's genius but I can't find it I think it was 2013 ADG awards but it really encapsulated what other people think that we all do. That thing on the screen, that's, that's what we do. And that's what we're proud of, that thing. In this episode, you will hear her unforgettable voice as we talk about the industry and her beginnings with Charles Eames. She is remarkable. She is an icon to me, and I can't believe she agreed to let me interview her. She even kindly invited me to her beautiful mid-century home, where I'm pretty sure I sat on an original Eames chair. I really, I, I literally pinched myself when I walked up to her door. It was, uh, it was an amazing experience for me, and, and, and I hate to sound like such a dork, but uh, it really was. So I hope you enjoy. I started, uh, well, I rewatched the Eames documentary. Yeah. Which... I mean, I knew, obviously, I knew of you and and knew that you had worked there, but when I first saw it, back when it came out, and then re-watched it last weekend, and, and now having been in this business and then using the furniture so much and seeing how versatile it is, what was it really like to be there and when all this was going on? Well, I was a stupid kid. <laughs> I had no idea. But the naiveness always helps us. <laughs> I, I had no idea that it would end up being as important as it did in the long run. I did know at the time that I went to work with him that he was considered one of the United States' most famous living designers. And I remember a very funny incident that happened in art history class a few years previous to my joining the Eames office, I sat next to a guy whose father turned out to be a vice president of Herman Miller Furniture Company. And we were at the chapter where the guy was lecturing, our professor was lecturing about modern contemporary design. And he was talking about Eames, Saren, and Nelson, a few other people of that ilk. And the guy leaned over and he says, oh, you know, um, if you ever go to California and you want to visit the Eames office, you can let me know. And I looked at him and I said, what are you talking about? We're studying the guy in art history. He must be dead. <laughs> I mean, it was one of those moments of, oh, how dumb can you be when you're a kid? You know? But I remembered that. And when I secured an invitation to the office, I didn't think much of it. I was just here as a guest, just going there as a guest. You didn't live here yet? No. Okay. And I looked, uh, or at least if I was living here, it was in a temporary state of mind. And I looked around the office and I had one of those moments of, oh, I belong here. <laughs> I fit here. This suits me. 
this is the world I'm comfortable in. I'd really like to be here more. So on the way out the door, I just casually said to his assistant, um, you don't have any jobs here, by the way, do you? And she looked me up and down a couple of times and said, yes, as a matter of fact, we do. And I thought, wow, that's never happened before. It's always a no, boom, get right. out the door. Right. And I said, well, what would that job entail? And she said, well, you know, you need to um, help Charles do reading and research and writing because he's just been appointed by, God help us, Richard Nixon, to the... Uh, Arts Council for the United States. Uh, and I thought, National Arts Council. And I thought, oh, well, I know how to read and think, and I can do that. And she said, well, you have to curate the book library. And I had seen the size of the book library, and I thought, okay, that's manageable. <laughs> and you have to curate the black and white film library. I mean, the stills. Oh. And I thought, ooh. There's a lot of those. I saw the binders. And curate the slide library. And I thought, that's even bigger. And, they, and then... They she, hadn't hired someone yet. And then she added <laughs> Wait for you someone. To walk in. Then she added uh, the last one, which was the real killer. She said, oh, and you have to handle post-production of the films. <laughs> I was silent. And I thought, I don't know anything about filmmaking. Never mind post-production of the films. The rest of it I thought I could manage if someone showed me what their system was. So the second day I was there, I called Fred Johnson at Technicolor because his name was on the list of contacts for post-production of the Eames films. And Eames had made, at that time, almost 100 short personal, educational, industrial, documentary kind of films. Mm -hmm. I called Fred Johnson at Technicolor and I said, hi, I'm, uh, I'm supposed to be handling uh, post-production of, uh, of the Ames office film library and I understand that from this list that you are responsible for printing quite a number of them. There was a silence at the other line, end of the line and he says, get in your car <laughs> and he gave me directions to Technicolor and he said, my job is clearly going to be a lot easier if you know what your job is. So I have been forever grateful to Fred Johnson at Technicolor <laughs> who gave me directions and then took me around the whole Technicolor operation and explained every aspect of post-production on films to me so that I would know what I was talking about when I had to talk to him or anybody else about that. And I, he said, oh, and bring your notebook. <laughs> so I thought, that's you know a very shorthand? smart guy. He saved himself a lot of pain by spending two hours giving me an education. And do you think that still, those lessons you learned still apply now when you... Not really anymore, but they sure as hell did when did. I had the job. Yeah. I mean, I really did have to know 
what imbibition printing was and <laughs> all kinds of stuff. Well, the languages now, that language has disappeared from the vocabulary. But I, I, I learned a lot from him and I was very grateful. And I was also kind of amazed that I got the job and I basically only got it because Charles liked me. Some of the other guys who had been working there for a long time knew that I didn't have a technical design education because I didn't. I had an education in general, a general liberal arts education. And the Eames office was the place where I got up every single day and was the only person I knew who graduated from college who got up every morning and used everything <laughs> from that degree. I really did. And I felt really privileged. But Charles basically said to me, you do not have <clears throat> the kind of technical education that most people have who come here and apply for a job. But, he said, I can teach someone how to draw. What I cannot teach is how to think or how to see. If you can see and you can think, you can have a job here. And I thought, I'm not really sure what he means, right. but I'll give it a go. It's the best possible job I could ever get in this damn city where I know not one <laughs> single body. That's incredible. <clears throat> so, I went to work there and ended up staying for eight years. At first, I was like any person in a new job, sort of lost. I mean, I wasn't like- Well, it must was, have been overwhelming. It was, yeah. I mean, I really was in a new city without a lot of friends and just trying to figure out who I was and what I was doing. So that was a pretty great experience. It was pretty all-consuming. Yeah. in a way more all-consuming than the film business is because it, Charles went there seven days a week no matter what. He had plenty to do in the office on part of the day on Sundays when some of us weren't there. But if there was a, <clears throat> a big exhibition to be completed or a film that had to be done, we all wandered in and worked. We jumped in. That was just something we did. And... The reason why I say I got to use my liberal arts education every day was because we did, we were working at the time on large traveling exhibitions. Um, one of which was there was a series on the history of astronomy, which IBM paid for. Mm -hmm. And then there was a series on the American, or a big one on the American Revolution. Uh, which the uh, USIA, the government, paid before. for because it traveled around to other countries before it came back to was this one. Was that the one that went to Russia? Uh, no, was no. Yeah. That was before my time. Yeah. Um, so I spent every day researching, figuring out what the important ideas were that were the things we needed to illustrate and to talk about in the films and in the design. What, what were the important and what were the interesting ideas and how, did, how could we illustrate them? 
and spending time talking with Charles and other people in the office about what I had learned when I did this research. So that basically was my was education. Yeah, you had another, I got another up eight every years day, of school. <laughs> got up every day and used that. Yeah. And that stood me in good stead in the film business because it really taught me how to recognize an important idea and an idea that you can bring to life visually in an environment and bring to life subliminally through objects or color or environment as well. So what it was like, I don't know how to say what it was like. <laughs> I have to sit and think about that for a long time. It was, it, was, it was in retrospect a place like none other. And the people who worked there with me at the same time I was there, we do have a bond. You're still, you're still in contact? I see them at least once or twice a year, oh, both socially and, you know, I call them if I need some help because they're the people who respond the most efficiently. <laughs> um, and it's, it, the whole thing has stood me in good stead. And I remember when I went to the film business, talking to some people about my first job, I thought to myself, these people are a little stupid. <laughs> they don't know that I don't know anything. They just think because I worked for Charles Eames, I must know something. I don't know that. I'm the one who knows I don't know anything. But isn't that the but best? But that didn't stop them the, from hiring me. And it didn't stop you from going it for the job either. It didn't stop me from doing it. Right, right. <laughs> There's, I have gone by act as if, act as if. Like, I have a producer come in, or a director, whatever. Do this, do this. Okay, great. Shit, but was that in the script? I don't even... Did I right. miss that? Like, I better, I don't, I better I'm go just figure do that it. out. Right? <laughs> yeah. I better figure that out. <laughs> now, it teaches you how to think on your feet fast. And the fact that people simply had confidence in my abilities just because I had managed to last working for Charles Eames for eight years was either a testament to my hard-headedness or his reputation. I don't know which. How was Ray? Ray was part of the entire thing. She really sort of ran it with Charles. She had a very different personality from Charles. Charles was the one who went out on the road and snagged the jobs and did the public speaking. And Ray was the one who most of the time was back in the office making sure things ran smoothly and effectively and making an enormous number, countless number every day of aesthetic decisions that amounted to basically the way that the office thought and presented itself and expressed itself you know, visually. Well, really, uh, the key to the whole process. I mean, yeah. she had a huge undertaking there. And she had her... I, I was the person in the office that she went to when she had a complaint about the way that the world looked at her as Charles's wife. Hmm. And I think 
she had that complaint because she recognized in me someone who was determined to have credits on my own and not share them and had come up in the world at the moment when the feminist movement was breaking like a wave over all of us and the scales fell from our eyes and we saw something about the world that hadn't really been looked at hard, hard and cruel before. Right. And she recognized that in me. And from watching the course of their marriage, what I recognized was it's better not to ever muddy the waters by sharing a credits with someone you live with or are married to. It just makes journalists and people think that you are the mere helpmate. You are the mere handmaiden to the Lord. It doesn't seem to go the other way. Which I was never going to accept. It doesn't seem to go the other way. No. Rare. No. Never seems to be the female is the head and nope. then the male. Never gone the other no. way. So what I recognized was if you want this for yourself, you will be getting this alone by yourself. You cannot count on and should not count on a relationship to make that work. Yeah. I've seen many women's careers, or at least some fall apart because of a relationship with somebody and then the world suddenly began to assume well that's so-and-so's girlfriend right. not that's that that's designer it. or that's right you know and that's you know everybody everybody pays for who they are on one level or another and you have to recognize it and accept what's good about you and what's bad about you and just like live with it yeah. but that's what I part of what I learned at the Eames office is just ha that I had to be prepared to do it myself. I think probably seeing that firsthand between them and seeing her role and his role and seeing that she wasn't getting the recognition, that had to inspire you in a sense of... Well, it was I enraging and frustrating for her. Yeah. And I could see her rage and frustration, but there wasn't anything I could do about it, really. I mean, the fact was that he was the one who was presenting everything in public. Right. He was the face. Yeah. And when yeah. that happens, the inevitable occurs. Yeah. And then you can get in a rage or be frustrated as much as you like about it, but on some level... It happened because of society and it happened because you let it happen or it's because you're the way you are and he's the way he is. Well, you can't change that. You know, you accept these flawed conditions. It doesn't mean you don't rage about them <laughs> right. periodically. Right. It just means that there you are, you're in it. How do you feel, do you feel in being in production design it was harder? To be a woman? Well, again, I think I was, you know, like a frog egg surrounded by a gelatinous mass of ignorance that protected <laughs> me from knowing that this wasn't something I shouldn't be doing or this was something that was hard to do. 
I just somehow was cocooned off from it and didn't recognize it and just kept going. And then all of a sudden, somebody brought it up to me and I said, really? I, mean, I don't know how else to put it. I mean, I, I was pretty tough-skinned and pretty hard-minded and pretty determined. And I also, like all things in life, was lucky. And sometimes you make your own luck and sometimes you see the window of opportunity passing by and you know, that's the window, baby. I got to yeah, dive I through. <laughs> I may get beat up and a couple of broken bones and some major black and blue marks, but that's the window. I better go through it. Yeah. I, I definitely agree that you can see it sometimes that like this is an opportunity that I have to take and if I don't I'm going to regret it yeah and your career could suffer from it and that's I think a fear a fear of like taking time off or taking I don't know if and I don't know I'm I hope men have the same insecurity about that but you know not taking projects or turning something down I'm never they're not going to call me again that type of thing but well I think you develop over a while a trust in the future and that can sometimes be misplaced but the fear should never be the ruler it should be the motivator I mean every time I take a job I'm terrified I'm skating on thin ice I could fall through Everything could go wrong. Everybody could find out that, you know, I really don't know what I'm doing after all. You know, it's every, every job is that way. And that fear of failure is a great motivator. But it cannot be so great that it stops you. It has to motivate you. And there's a, there's a, there's a gradient. And I try to pay attention to that gradient of fear mm-hmm. but I've also tried to pay attention to you know who I am my whole life isn't the motion picture business there are a lot of other things that I really love and enjoy and I need to balance out life with uh, some of that too yeah because it's consuming oh it our, is. our world is consuming it is time <clears throat> of your brain power of your your sleeping hours of you know, personal life suffers and it is all consuming when you're in it. I have found, and blocks of time I have gone through, oh, that was season four of that show. I don't, yeah. Then my friend had a baby. Like that's how I, I was like, oh yeah. And it's, it, I always think like, oh, I'm not like a brain surgeon or something. Like why do I care so much? But I do. It's a passion and this is my career and I do care and I can't, I'm starting to feel like I can't feel bad about it. I chose this. I really love it. So why am I feeling bad about it? (laughs) But it's consuming. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I don't know a single person in this business who does not get angry periodically at the amount of life space that it chews up, this business. But on the other hand you get a lot of pleasure from it too. It gives you something back. You can count on it for giving you something back. And that's, that's a good thing. Yeah. 
Do you think that helps with longevity in this career of appreciating what it gives back to you? I think you have to have some of that. You have to be able to have a distance from it and look at it on some level that's personal, but also philosophical. Because you fall into a great long line of other people who have done the same thing and found the same pains and the same pleasures as you have. And hopefully behind you will come more just like you. You're part of a continuum. Yeah. It's not like you're inventing something that's never happened before to anyone ever. You have to see yourself as part of part of a continuum. And sometimes that's good and sometimes that's frightening too. <laughs> well, I bet I do want to say that you were so kind and I think it was 2005. I don't remember dates. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I think it was I'm just trying to put in uh, that's where I lived at the time that's where and you were so nice because I stalked you a little bit and got your email and asked to meet with you just to talk about the career of it and and the business and any advice you could give because at the time I I had started a, a path to go in production design and then wanted to switch into set decorating and you were kind enough to meet with me you got a parking ticket i felt really bad oh i've gotten many parking tickets over the year you shouldn't feel so, bad about so it that and that i have always thought of that and anyone who ever contacts me or anything i always try to either like meet with them or set if you want to come see the set or anything because few people responded <laughs> you know, and I always thank you for that. Yeah. Because it was inspiring. Because oh, there's something about um, you were reachable and, and honest and told me it was hard and this is really hard. And if you want to do it, you should do it. But I can't tell you how to do it. But this is a great business, but it's hard. Right. And that's, that's <clears throat> the bottom line. And that, you know, that's what it is. But if... Like, if you have the passion, go for it. Yeah. And, and you know, it, people who have a passion for it, generally, they generally find their way through it one way or another. Um, yeah, I I've don't known know. other women who have started thinking, well, I should be a production designer, and then after a while figured out that actually they really enjoyed set decorating a lot more. Yeah. And other people who wanted to be a production designer who thought, well, I don't really want to deal with the politics and the, that happens at that level. I think I just enjoy being an art director. But it takes time to kind of sort out who you are and where you're going to function best and happiest. There's so many little niches in this business, yeah. too. Model makers, illustrators, graphic designers. Right. And and I think finding that little niche makes you happy too. Because if you are overwhelmed in this, as we all are anyway, you're really going to sink. You're really, it's not going to be for you. It's going to deter you from Yeah, find from doing what you're it. good at and pick at it every day. I went from, I want to be a model maker. I want to be a set designer. <laughs> I went through everything. My bookshelves are like, oh, how to be a... <laughs> like, it was crazy at one point. I didn't know. Well, you have an opportunity. There are certain numbers of years 
where you have an opportunity to try different things out and to flummox a bit. I mm -hmm. remember standing in front of a timeline of the Eames office that was being created for a big exhibition about the history of the office. And Charles was there. I caught him standing in front of it, chewing on the end of his glasses and looking at it. And I came up behind him and he looked at me and he said, ah, you get a long time in this life to be a total dummy. <laughs> and off he went. And I, of course, you know, these are the kinds of statements that you only understand a few decades later. Right, right. Because you they can haunt reflect. you. Because you can reflect at that time. Right. They haunt you because you think he said that to me for a reason. Now, what was the reason? And so it haunts you. But after a while, you've begun to understand, oh, yeah, I spent a lot of years being an idiot, too. Yeah. Yeah. I always like to think... Every job I had, I learned something to get me to the next one. Yeah. I, well, if you're not learning anything, you're dead. Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> true. I would be putting flowers on your grave. It's true. Get Good up or bad, day, you're learning something. Try to do one interesting thing, learn one thing. Yeah. It's otherwise, I don't know what life is for. <laughs> uh, you did say in that documentary that you had so much more to ask him. Oh. What do you think you'd ask him? Um... <laughs> well, that's an amorphous question, yeah. and I think I have to answer in more of an emotional way. When your intellectual parent dies, because he was my intellectual parent, not my biological parent, you know that something that you've just become used to, because it's been there all the time, has been ripped away from you, and you just know that you just know that there are going to come many situations down the road and in the future where you could benefit from his kind of meandering, metaphorical, foggy way of looking at things <laughs> because somehow. His fog was a lot more clear than most people's clarity. Do you think And you I miss that. Do you think you say that because you knew him? Do you think if he had said a sentence to people he didn't know he would they'd be like, I don't know what this guy's talking about. But because you knew him you could understand you had an insight. Uh, yeah, and there were people who understood him and as he put it to me don't have difficulty with foggy problems. Hmm. Because he had a sense that he spoke in a kind of personal metaphorical language and not everyone responded to it. And I had no problem responding to that, what he called foggy problems. Just somehow you find one corner of it and work at it. But I, I was comfortable with however it was his mind worked, more or less, yeah. and could figure out how to make my way in, in that shadow. So, yeah, I mean, I can't give you a specific right now. I could probably, if I thought about it for a, 
a while, come up with specific things I'd like to ask him. But, you know, every time I asked him things, he always had an answer which no one else would have been able to give me. And I think that's something that I miss is the individuality of the way he wow. would answer a question. Nothing normal. No one would answer it in the way he answered it. And that answer would shed, came from his own wisdom and would shed an enormous light on a very shadowy road ahead of me. <laughs> After I recorded this interview, I listened to it again and again for the next couple of days because it made me hungry to be more creative, to step back and reconnect with what design of film is about and how impactful it can be. I mean, to be so creative, to get so into it, it was so inspiring to me and I hope it is to others. I know you enjoyed that. That's why I have a whole nother interview with Janine on the next episode. If you have a moment, if you love this podcast, please rate and review on iTunes. I hope you got an earful. I'm Kim Wanup for Decorating Pages. Decorating Pages is sponsored by Stogie Floaty, luxury pool floats. Float them if you got them. Visit stogiefloaty.com.